we're going to go on here and be giving out about your man for lifting up the post and stuff like that. But actually, like, I mean, he's a complete genius. Like, why has nobody tried it before? Like, he, we shouldn't be criticising him at all. Anyway, we better start the show. We'll, we'll get going, will we? Yeah, okay. Hello and welcome to World and Union, Balls of the weekly rugby show with me, Mick McCarthy, alongside Morris Brosnan. We're back with you again today. Lots to talk about the Ch- Heineken Champions Cup on this weekend. Uh, lots more besides. But Morris, we have to start where everybody's talking about the absolute disgrace. That Edinburgh <laughs> player lifting up the Schumann, is that his name? Yeah. Lifting up the post, endangering all the Munster lads. I mean, like, like someone could have died. That was absolutely outrageous. Yeah, why st- uh, do you join me in my righteous anger? In your uh, condemnation? Yeah. Well, uh, why why stop there though? I, I by the way, I don't think you're trying to lift the Can we kick him out of the game altogether? <laughs> I don't think you should have stopped. If the lifting the padding is okay, why didn't you try and take the posts? Like take the entire goalposts and take them away. Take the corner flags, like take them out away as well, try and just hoot them out. Why didn't he misdirect them so that monster when they're coming out actually came out in the wrong pitch? Like just totally <laughs> set up a, a to- if you're allowed to interfere with everything on the field, why didn't he go the next step further? They should have taken the goalposts and planted them on the other end of the field yeah, put them and in Tom and Park yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> literally unearthed them yeah um, oh alright anyway I think that, you know a, a, an interesting thing we've never seen I think a mixture between ingenuity and you know out of orderness yeah. I was going to say disgrace I don't think it's disgrace I think that might be stepping it too far but it is it's unsporting and a little bit too dangerous to be something that is merely funny on its own yeah but let's face it it was pretty funny like you saw for, for about a second you saw it live and you're like this is what is he doing and you're kind of like laughing at the tv and then it kind of very quickly dawns you're like that is so dangerous like what yeah, if exactly. somebody's going to pick yeah, and go yeah, around yeah, the yeah, corner here yeah. so you're kind of simultaneously laughing while also realizing that this could be potentially like really really damaging for for somebody that maybe he should put it down particularly when he's asked by the referee to put it down and just seemingly is allowed to ignore him why That's, didn't the referee penalize like, him he just points at him tells him to put it down and the referee's like no you're alright I'll like, ignore that I, like, the joking at the start aside like I'm not in I'm not interested in the con- condemnation and uh, like throwing out the game but in fairness it's a penalty trying a red card isn't it? Yeah, like, I, as in, like, there's no real argument in it, like, you know? I think, particularly after... I think he should have immediately penalised it, and then, while in the game... Like, you see this a lot, you know, the Wayne Barnes is really good at this. He'll direct... Like, a player is on borderline infringing, and he'll direct them to stop, and it allows the game to flow that bit much more. But when he gives that direction, they do stop. Like, they don't just ignore him. Mm. Once he's ignored you, I think... You, you, referee kind of looks weak if he doesn't stand in straight away, and it's like, yeah, just... Pen- like, he got to a stage where Jack O'Donoghue was captain is coming over and says to points at the post and says that was a sporting and uh, Marius' answer is oh I'll talk to him I'll talk mm. to him and, like, and he didn't did he he spoke to him during the play anyway and he ignored you what makes you think he's going to listen now he went to the TMO for so long that I think he actually forgot about it and the, the, didn't talk to him at all yeah because they were trying to confirm Tommy Donald's try and initially that's where it all kind of warranted and sure once the try was given it kind of didn't ma- like the, that's the funniest thing about it all it didn't stop a try like they still conceded yeah. in, on, on that play but uh, yeah like pretty uh creative but also just so dangerous yeah, terrible as well <laughs> look we'll talk more about postgate uh on the build-up uh, uh later on uh, this week we'll also have special uh, pods especially for it on thursday friday saturday and sunday this week at world union we'll be in especially to record that just to talk a little bit more about postgate but also for the rest of this show we're going to talk about some other stuff so ireland are playing 
we played four French teams in the Champions Cup two weeks ago. Now we're back in the Champions Cup and Irish teams are playing four, four English teams. So it's nice symmetry there. Um, but two English teams in particular that you want to talk of that aren't involved in the, any of these games are the Leicester Tigers and Bristol. Do Bristol have a name? Bristol Bears, yeah. Bristol they, Bears, they, they, they didn't they, used to, you Yeah, see they it, changed so. it last year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not inbuilt in me the way Leicester Tigers is, but Leicester and Bristol, two traditional um, English rugby cities uh, with really, really proud histories, but going in two different directions. Exactly. And if you look at it, like, Leicester is, you know, the, they, they've been the gold standard for so long. Bristol have actually been the ones that have struggled over the last two decades or so, but now that Pat Lamb is there, he's doing an amazing job. You want to talk about that, but Leicester, on the other hand, are just going to complete other direction and we're going to talk to Chris Egerton who's um, a Leicester Tigers commentator for BBC Leicester Sport and really looking forward to that because like I think just give people a synopsis before we get into it as to what's going on at Leicester. Well it's funny right Mick like I don't know what you think about this but say we had we've had Bristol people on this podcast like we had Jay Keenan and Ali Muldowney uh, over the last year both uh, speak to us about uh, Ali Muldowney was brilliant on the intricacies of the second row but um, and Jake was also really good on working under Pat and what that entails. But away from that for a second, like we would have been totally, and we were, and our audience were totally captivated by the Gordon Murphy story this time last year. I remember actually, I said this to Chris earlier when we spoke, the 4th of December last year, we were on this podcast and we spoke about Murphy's interview after the Bristol game. I don't know if you remember this. And he apologized to fans and said he was appalled and embarrassed. It was like one of the most forthright, honest interviews that you've kind of seen from a, a rugby coach. And since then, things have actually gotten way worse. But because of the World Cup and the changes in coaches and all the recent developments and Joe Schmidt stepping away and his book and everything, it's just totally kind of faded from the Irish rugby conscious. I do find that sometimes that the Irish rugby is a bit more insular than, say, football, for example, where yeah. they would look outwardly a lot more. But it actually entails like the reason that I really like the story is that it kind of captures the, the you know the team we spoke to Ali about last year the short termism that is kind of to the detriment of a lot of clubs to my mind Leicester actually epitomised that like mm. they're you look at their sign and it, it is kind of a weird economy where you look at the team that went out against Northampton and you're looking at like Johnny May and Dan Cole and Manu Tuolagi and George Ford and no read yeah. on the bench you know like yeah. uh, I was uh, thinking that during the World Cup was like the, Jesus like I mean after Saracens, they have the most English players and a team that just made the World Cup final. And to my, I actually think that that kind of might be the problem. It's kind of what Ali was hinting at that it's like th- those players are there, but it's what is beneath that that is so important for English clubs. Like it's like I thought Noel Reed was a really good signing for uh, Leicester at the time because they kept Tuilagi was either injured or on English duty and they kept missing him, so they needed a centre who was close to international standard but wasn't going to be missing for internationals. Could, would be relied on regularly. That's exactly what Noel Reed is. Like you, if you want to take a classic example, somebody like Scott Fardy in the Leinster who is international standard but isn't going to be missing. So when you've got all your internationals left, he can step up as a leader. Uh, no, I thought that was what, but that was one signing made last summer to kind of trying to reciprocate for five years of damage that came before that and as well that you got coaching upheaval with Rich Cocker so you see the team that they put out against um, the Northampton who will go out to play Leinster like Northampton looked brilliant but you're also looking at the like the just lack of any sort of planning like you've got a stage where Ben Youngs is at the back of a like his box sixes are either wildly inaccurate or his box sixes are actually great but they look really good but then you realise that it wasn't part of the plan because there's no kick chase so the Chase is coming up very slowly, or you, like you don't have wingers the way you would. Like, there's just no, 
synchronicity with the team at the minute. And then on top of that, you've Ellis Genge spoke after this game. He actually described them, the team, as shit, like his own team. Like, it's like so, it, just to give an example of where Leicester are right now. So we'll get into that with Chris later. Like the final thing I'll say on that actually, just before uh, we move on to Bristol, there's a real, real chance now that Leicester Tigers are going to be passed out by. Saracens this season in a relegation battle. Saracens, you've had a massive points deduction as well as that. Like the, just to kind of stress how bad the situation is in Leicester right Leicester, now. Yeah. Um, which is just such a shame for a team that we like. We talk about the English the previous days of the Heineken Cup. They would have been synonymous with that. Like that's the would have been so many of my memories of yeah. uh, European rugby was associated with with that Tigers team. Do you know what actually happened? Go on. You, you and Chris are looking for rugby reasons and you know financial reasons and all that. But what happened was the football team won the league in 2016 and have been really good since and are now second in the league. And ever since then, there's only room for one successful, successful team <laughs> in, in the Leicester. city. Yeah. But it's always been the rugby team because the football team have never bothered them. And now all of a sudden, they're in there causing mayhem. So Shamrock Rovers have to wait for a Leinster lull before they can finally yeah. <laughs> win the league. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, well, I suppose the Dublin football team are probably... <laughs> Dublin football team and Leinster somehow managed to coexist peacefully. Um, I don't understand how. Right, okay. Um, we'll talk more about that with Chris in a few minutes and we'll talk, um, we'll talk again more about exactly what's going on in Bristol and Pat Lamb and stuff like that. I know you've been kind of itching to talk about that all week as well. It's kind of the other side of the coin. But... Listen to this for Saturday if you're an Irish rugby fan. 1pm, the Northampton Saints versus Leinster. 3.15pm, Ulster versus Harlequins. 5.30pm, Thoman Park, traditional kickoff time for Thoman Park, Munster versus Saracens. That's not a bad afternoon no. if you want to spend a little bit of time watching rugby. Obviously, Connacht, as usual, are bumped to the, to the Sunday afternoon, one o'clock slot. <laughs> they don't get to play in the whole uh, the big boys game. They're playing Gloucester away. Which is an interesting game that I actually did. Well, let's start on that, actually. Let's start on Connacht's game because I remember talking even after they lost to Toulouse and that they put up a good performance and there was a, there was a sense for me that what Connacht need to do this season is cons- consolidate their place in this competition, yeah. that they want to be competitive and they want to be um, a team that's in there every year or close to every year. Anyway, obviously, that's not an easy thing to do is in like the you know with the way the pro 14 is structured but they can do it that's their priority win their home games and you know maybe get into a stage where maybe next year they're trying to get out of the group a little bit more however i look at this game and it's coming closer to it and i'm thinking like this is actually an opportunity i don't know if gloucester are as good as Toulouse. can connacht go and win this game like what you would from a connor can we park the discussion about from a tournament perspective for a second? Like, we'll just talk about from a Connacht perspective what you would hope would happen. I know this isn't good for the tournament, but just Gloucester have lost two games. You would hope that right now their focus reorientates to the Premiership. And if Connacht could get back to back wins, it would be, it could, this pool could, like, you're talking about effectively yeah, because. Three of, wins out of four then. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. the makeup of this, like, you're, Connacht are really hoping to try and ping uh, a second, a runners up spot if they're, if they're honest in terms of, like, especially with Toulouse in there as well. Getting the result against Montpellier, I think, will really, really help in terms of that battle. But because of the Gloucester situation and the fact that they get to play them third now, so they get back to back games of that, you're also talking about a Connacht team that, like, weren't brilliant. Uh, against the Kings but at the same time Bundyaki a week after signing the contract scoring a try is great to see and welcoming back remember we talked about this, the issue with the scrum at the start and the end of the game which like ultimately is just you scratch below the surface and this is when case in point Leicester what we were talking about earlier mm. uh, 
Buckley coming back to their front row is massive. Like that is a huge, huge return. So I like I actually think Connacht can win this game. I I kinda would I don't know if I'm gonna go as far as to say I would expect them to win, but you would like you would certainly expect them to come really, really close to yeah. maximizing their return this weekend and the, if you if you do that you're talking about especially given back-to-back games win this week whatever about after two after three games if you've got a Gloucester on three losses that fourth game suddenly looks like a really kind of tantalising affair and so like you're you're right in the mix after that so you would yeah. like you would really hope that Connets this weekend could really kind of launch some sort of a, even and even if it, they don't get out of the pool just to log that against Gloucester would be huge for their season definitely yeah and that's what I'm saying like a, it also might just open up for them as well because you know, to lose in Montpellier, you have to play twice. You've got to lose at the sports ground. You could lose two games in this and still be in a shout with top of the pool. Like, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Exactly, you know? yeah. You need to start looking at bonus points and stuff like that later on. But anyway, I think Connacht are in with a great chance this, this week. In kind of in order of the other games then, Northampton and Leinster. We talked last time about Leinster sort of not really showing anything so far this season. Like, they're kind of easing their way into the year and they're good enough to do that. But like to go away now to Northampton and win, you're talking about Northampton's performance at the weekend. They're gonna have to like show a little bit themselves. Northampton aren't naive in the way that perhaps Leon were two weeks ago. No, definitely not. I I think this has eventually to be a brilliant game. Actually, like and even like Leinster probably haven't clicked, but you still have this like ridiculous production line. You see Will Connors' performance he put in last week again. Like the direction they're moving in that kind of fosters competitiveness and it does feel like that they are kind of moving towards like a really competitive year and then you look at uh Northampton Saints team and you you know performances of people like like Lewis Ludham is a player I'm really kind of interested in he was a guy who was knocking around the World Cup squad people might remember he was the, the back row who was in floods of tears before England's warm-up game I think was it against Italy uh, before the World Cup and then they're putting in a massive performance and people are like is this guy suddenly in contention now it's pretty hard to get into contention when it's a back row as competitive as that he's also got his teammate uh, Nathan Hughes right there as well and then you know you've got a guy like Hutchinson in the centre who's like Northampton are kind of clever and as Ali said last week Chris Boyd has fostered a bit of squad depth that actually allows them to be competitive in Europe so I, I think this game could be uh, a lot of fun I think it's two teams moving in the right direction uh, after really promising starts to their season and that kind of bodes well to have like a, what effectively is now a heavyweight clash in, in yeah. Europe first game in the, for, for, of the Saturday anyway I know there's uh, Friday night games it's 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 one of those ones sometimes that you're almost not ready for. Like, as in, this could be the game of the weekend and you're sort of, you ease yourself into the Champions Cup weekend sometimes, like, you know, and it's just like, suddenly it's, shit, this is Northampton versus Leicester, Leinster away from home. Ulster versus Queens. Ulster, like, are in such a good position now because it is Claremont nonsense, you know, um, <laughs> what happened last time. But they, they, they get back-to-back wins here. You almost think... Quinns, who were so, like, they looked like they were just a complete beaten docket already after the Claremont game, like they were beaten by nearly 50 points, I think. You know, they did go out and beat Bath at the Stoop then the following week. You know, we had the Joe Marler interview, obviously, completely, uh, that galvanized his, his teammates and they went out and won the match. But, like, the, it does keep them in it because they've won their one home game and they've lost, to, like, Claremont away is almost like a, seen as a... a, a your throwaway almost you know so this group is still kind of actually wide open you know yeah I think like I, I, Claremont's their stick 
seems, for want of a better phrase, seems to be we'll go full throttle uh, at home and we'll do what French teams do away and hope to get uh, a losing bonus point, which they managed to do against Ulster, which is why uh, I know like I, people were kind of surprised that I was critical of Ulster. I wasn't critical, really, but I just thought that given how bad Claremont were, you shouldn't really have let them get anything out of that game. Like a team that poor shouldn't get shouldn't get any results. Um, I think like Ulster are a really interesting case study and we won't know what, but like Dan McFarland, as well as kind of, you know, putting some semblance of structure on a team that was in chaos before he arrived, uh, also had like, they're developing a, like, a mean streak. I mean that in a positive sense now, but like, you know, there is something really encouraging to see, to see an Ulster team go like full throttle against Scarlet and just like foot on the throat, no let up. We're getting a bonus points win yeah. here. Regardless of, the, yeah. I think is really we're not we're not that mid table team who's going to be fighting with the Scarlets for a place in Europe next year anymore. We've taken you over, and we're going to show you that exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's actually like that in in a, in a way that's kind of what European rugby is about. Like the, that's why they can't allow those kind of margins. That the thing that has haunted this Ulster team from kind of reaching their potential is, you know, they'd put in an incredible performance against Leinster in the quarter final, and then uh, incident like the Scottsdale dropped ball for the try or whatever and they don't close it out and then they put in a, a really effective performance against Connacht in the Pro 14 and then a really meek performance against Glasgow and bow out kind of in th- like if they had that bit of mean streak where you can kind of regardless of the ebb and flow of a game you can just knuckle down and really kind of you know like grind it out if you, if it if it needs be like play to the, the percentages and kind of mix it that way I know they Darren McFarland has built and I mean Jared Payne I think is a really interesting the work he's done with their defence as well the improvements there but like to become just that bit more mean like and I, I really like that about this Ulster team I like their back row like really Murphy and you know and Kuwaiti like they're they're mean you know <laughs> I mean that in a really positive sense and I think that can actually stand to them particularly in in Europe and I, like, I would love to see Ulster become kind of that team like the team you're like oh do we really have to go up to Ravenhill on a Friday night and put up with or you know a really boisterous atmosphere and a team that aren't going to you know aren't going to flinch in front of us like, it, that there's no like there's no soft underbelly to this team I think that's that's a really encouraging sign from regardless of the development in players and you see the booming stories that we've talked about in the past like Eric O'Sullivan like just that kind of edge to a team I think is really encouraging yeah former John Cooney definitely helping as well yeah like, you know, yeah um, is he now the informed Irish scrum yeah, half you have to think he is you know and we've talked about informed Irish scrum halves a bit in this show because we were talking about Caleb Blade last, yeah, last week, week yeah you know I think the one name that doesn't seem to come up at the moment is Conor Murray on that but we'll talk about Munster in a sec but Ulster the other part, part about this is they need that killer instinct because this is must win because like this is a they need to consolidate that they need to oh, go they, in oh, to this. Hope, they, yeah. they probably need to win both of these games and then travel over to Claremont in the new year you know with a little bit of a cushion there like you yeah. know what oh, I mean so de- this is this is must win like definitely yeah and, and if possible I think uh, you'd want to be looking at a bonus point you need like they're going to have to compensate for the fact that they let Claremont get that losing bonus point I think if you're especially you know if Claremont do you could end up in a scenario again where you're vying for best of the runners up and that's when bonus points become so kind of crucial so if, if there was scope for that I think Gosser would really need to push for it speaking of must win yeah Munster versus Saracens this should be an amazing occasion I think regardless it's like the we're getting into that good time of year now for Thoman Park Saturday evening games I think it's going to be class Munster haven't like They've had two goals at Saracens over in, in knockouts over the last couple of years. 
and they just have shown themselves not to be at that standard. They were a little bit better last year than they were the year before, but they're just not quite there. But I don't know if that's the Saracens team that's coming to Limerick on Saturday. You might have a better idea of that. Do you think that? See, the other part of it is, as much as Saracens are definitely going to try and manage their resources a little bit this year, given the predicament that they're in in the Premiership, I don't know if the pride within that squad and its management is able to say, you know, we're after winning the last two Champions Cups. I don't want to go to Limerick and get a hiding here. Yeah. I don't want to seed that ground, no matter whether we have to or not, you know? It's, a, it's really interesting because this actually goes into... Uh, there's a couple of different strands to this that I find fascinating. So you've got the the first thing you mentioned the last Sorry, two. they've won two out of the last three. I forgot. I just, I just took a... Which I'll definitely get. I'll definitely get shit about that shit, <laughs> if I didn't address it. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned those the two game, last games against Munster. I was at both of them, and it was really interesting. And when we were over in the Rico last year, and it was put to Peter Matney that this margin of their loss was the exact same in both games, and he was surprised by that. He obviously hadn't comprehended it at the time but also was kind of adamant that that didn't reflect that yeah. Munster were getting closer and I kind of think he's right um, like with, they were know, very different matches the game yeah. in the Aviva they were never I in was it at that match Bendel was having it, a nightmare I was yeah. at that match like when we were in Munster fans like within within a group of Munster fans and it was very very early on it was apparent that they weren't going to win yeah. that game I'm not sure that was the case last year no definitely not I was at, at half time they were right in it so yeah. um, I, can, I can even remember you know thinking that they, they need something to click here like one break try and it would have been but then you start chasing the game after that and your defence gets a bit more sloppy and you start to apply a bit more pressure and you're more vulnerable to breaks and stuff like that Um and then, so from that perspective, you would kind of hope that Saracens do go full hog this weekend, just to see, like, as a litmus test, where are Munster at? Now, at the same time, if I'm Saracens, I'm, you know, looking at it strategically, right? And I'm, they annihilated Bath last weekend. Um, like, we're so much better. And welcome back all their English nationals, that must be said. But if I'm looking at Saracens, I'm like, the Leicester Tigers are a basket case right now. Our previous points to it weren't, all we're playing for is to avoid relegation in the Premiership. Our previous sponsors would do that for us. Our only possible avenue back into Europe and that lucrative market and players that obviously want to be playing in Europe is to win the Champions Cup. Do you start to roll back on this supposed idea that maybe their Premiership is their immediate priority? And if you do, you start that by naming a full-strength team, on, we'll find out on Friday, for the, the Munster game. But given all those circumstances, and you see like players coming back from the... World Cup and I, I guess this is just because they're so fit from the preparation for World Cup but they're also back in you know f- the familiarity of home and what that fosters so you see Owen Farrell comes back and is you know peerless doesn't miss a kick uh, maybe that kind of lends itself to maybe you want to build on that a small bit and start to go sentence so I, I would take I'm now starting to lean towards taking McCall uh, Mark McCall that is at a who is who said they were going to prior to sponsorship taking that with a pinch of salt and that maybe you know, maybe that was true at the time, but maybe circumstances have changed. And suddenly this game looks like a, a game that you could actually go with a full-strength team. Yeah. And uh, maybe that is bad news for Munster. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, um, But like, again, you want to be winning the competition properly. Exactly, like, yeah. You know, but there could be, like, there's a third option there that is more of the kind of the French traveling team option, which is you come and 
play your heart out for the first half and you see how it's going. Yeah. And maybe then if Munster can go in 10 points up at half time or six points up at half time, maybe it's like giving up for a bad job and we have a big game next week and let's not go out here and kill ourselves in the second half. You know, so Munster could have an influence on what Saracen seem they place as well. And over 80 minutes by their performance in the first 40. And the way Munster do that, by the way, is by reverting to... I know the Larkham stuff has been great and there's been really encouraging signs uh, in terms of their attacking structure and the even skill set. But the way you do that is by nailing your fundamentals. So the, the inaccuracies that we saw in Munster's line-out against Racing, you cannot do that against Saracens, even a second-string Saracens. Like, uh, Racing, that's what, when Racing played that second-string Saracens team, they took apart their line-out and it was, that basically decided the game. Like the, they just had no launch. So they're like that. Those both in terms of set piece, the monster of old. I wouldn't be one bit surprised to see this be a monster of more similar to last year than what we've seen so far this year in terms of playing to the percentages, keeping the ball tight, trying to beat up a team up front, kill their spirit. And as you mentioned, then at halftime, Saracens might be thinking, "Yeah, we'll call our losses here," and you kind of roll out from there. Okay. I'll keep your predictions for uh, you're going to be double jobbing on podcast duty today. You're going to be preparing on the, the build up a little bit later on tonight. And uh, we're going to get your, uh, your uh, you know, to put together a little bit of a bet for the weekend. You're going to be ably stepping in for one Stephen Ferris, you know. Who's been... Between the two of you, you have like 40 caps for Ireland. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Lions. And the Lions, yeah. yeah don't forget that. Like, so uh, you're well able for that. Um, but it's going to be a really interesting weekend. There are other games to, to sort of watch for as well. Like, you know, it's not always just the Irish teams with this, as we do like to talk about on this show. But, like, I mean, there are four games there to keep you interested. And if you can watch all of them, you'll be doing pretty well. Uh, you can also go and watch the bath game on Friday night if you're if if if, if you ha- if you have it in you, you know. But just do remember, there's a long day ahead of you Saturday, Saturday you know? yeah. uh, especially if you're trying to keep other people in the house who might not be rugby fanatics happy. Uh, let's again, we're going to talk about Bristol in a few minutes, but um, Leicester Tigers is something we talked about at the top of the show. The crisis there within. Uh, Jordan Murphy's future and what's going to happen there and you've been speaking to Chris Egerton BBC Leicester Sport Alright I'm delighted to say now we're joined by Chris Egerton BBC Leicester commentator for the Leicester Tigers Chris how's the form? <laughs> it's, uh, it's okay thank you very much indeed Boris I'm, uh, I'm bearing up I can imagine, yeah. So, to give you some context, this time last year we spoke on the podcast about Gordon Murphy's interview after the Bristol game, where he apologised to fans and said he was embarrassed and appalled. Now, then the World Cup came and there was coaching changes at the various provinces and meant we kind of had more pressing matters to focus on. But in the meantime, <laughs> Leicester have not improved. Uh, just from, to your own mind, I suppose, starting from Gordon taking over, what's, what's going on? How long have you got? <laughs> um, I think. I think actually, in some ways, I mean, the reason you're, you're calling, I'm sure, is because of the, the, the results against Northampton. And in yeah. many ways, uh, in many ways, that result reminded me a lot of that defeat to, to Bristol back in December. I think it was uh, this time last year, almost exactly twelve months on. Um, and there, you saw all of the England staff were brought back in after the autumn. And here, whilst they did have a game uh, against Poe in the Challenge Cup, it wasn't their first time back in uh, in the colours. Um, it felt 
very similar to that in the respect of the, the way they played. It was obvious what the game plan was. Um, you saw people who maybe two or three weeks ago when they were playing for England in the World Cup, very, very off their game, noticeably off their game. Uh, but in terms of where Leicester have gone over the last 12 months, I mean, I, I think, let's try and put this into some sort of context, and apologies if this, uh, if this is a little bit longer answer than, you know, than you're backing on. But, uh, essentially, there has been some change over the last 12 months, but the difficulty has been seeing it at the first team level. Some of the issues have been around uh, bringing through the academy players. Leicester have, uh, have relied over the last few years on uh, essentially bringing a few players in and then letting one or two players go. Well, there's, there's been a, there's certainly been an improvement in that. So you are seeing over the course of the summer a lot more kids given contracts. Uh, and plenty of players were released over the course of the summer, something like 20, I think 22, 23 players off memory were released from the club. And you'll see in the likes of England under 20 talent. So Jordan Oluwafela, Joe Hayes, all of which have been seen at Junior World Championships over the course of the last few months, all of them have been essentially uh, brought through. Whilst they're not necessarily starting games, they are getting a number of appearances. So Joe Hayes there, for instance, the bulk of his 30-odd appearances now for Tigers have been off the bench. So, and those are just two examples. Tigers have won the academy title in the Premiership the last two years running. So there's clearly a, a production line that's starting to be uh, to, to crank up a bit. And under previous coaches, those kids weren't given a go. And I'm sure you all know about the nickname for Matt O'Connor uh, when he was at Leicester, wasn't it? There wasn't it the uh, yeah, exactly. black door, wasn't it? Or something uh, you know that he wouldn't he wouldn't he wouldn't be giving give the kids a go. Well, that would that to be fair to him, um, didn't have a problem with him. I was working with him um, as a journalist, um, but he didn't give the kids. Oh, you're seeing a lot more of that, George. So that's one respect. I think two respects. Ironically enough, that fitness was certainly an issue last year when they sacked Matt O'Connor after just one game. It's definitely improved now. And up until the weekend, I would have said defensively they'd looked a bit tight, uh, tighter than they did. There was clearly issues in the dressing room last season as well. And the talk was from the camp that essentially there is a much tighter dressing room this season. So with all that bearing in mind, um, you get Saturday where essentially they tried to play from the looks of things a relatively set-piece orientated game. They look to keep things tight. They try to play a little bit now. Now, as Leinster are going to find out when they face Northampton over the next couple of weeks, Northampton play it wide and they play it often. And the problem was Leinster couldn't win, uh, sorry, Leicester couldn't win a line-out. Um, three of the five tries Northampton came from uh, line-out possession. Uh, from Leicester line-out possession deep inside the Northampton 22 as well. Uh, the first try of the lock came off the uh, first base scrum ball in the last 22 and uh, neither Ryan Act nor Proctor were, uh, were touched, let alone uh, barely spotted actually to be fair. And, then, uh, uh, but, and you can't take anything away from the quality of that Northampton pro- uh, performance as you will see at the Aviva in a, in a few days' time. You know, Northampton got fantastic strike runners. They are prepared to give the ball a chance. They're prepared to take a chance. They talk about good and bad mistakes. But when it came from Leicester, 
every mistake seems to become from a Leicester hand, be it the kicking not going into touch, be it a line-out failing. And certainly the line-out, that's been an issue over the last few months. So, you know, where, how you put that into context, and it wasn't a one-off uh, result. You've seen a lot of heavy defeats over the last couple of years. You start to think that maybe, maybe there's something systemic here at Leicester that, that perhaps goes beyond the coaching level and maybe explains why up until this particular point, Jordan Murphy hasn't actually received the criticism that a lot of other coaches would have received in circumstances like this. Well, no, that's a very interesting point. That's something actually, if we could elaborate on that for a second, because on the one hand, I saw um, former English out half Andy Goad tweeting at the weekend that he said it's not Gordon Murphy who was the issue at the club. Uh, yes, he's a maiden mine, but it's the people above him who've made all the hiring and firing decisions, mistakes over the last five years, recruitment and planning, who are the problem. But then at the same time, you look at the squad that they put out against the Saints and you see names like Johnny Ney and Manu Tualagi and George Ford and even uh, Noel Reid, who we'd be very familiar with here, who left... Leinster on the bench and you kind of think that surely a squad as talented as that should be putting in better performances than, than they have I think there's been a question but the difference has been the question has been around the split between say the first team and the backup squad okay. obviously you know, while at Leinster for instance, I mean, you've got a fantastic academy you've got a great catchment there a huge part of Ireland of course because of the sheer numbers of population in the Dublin area, you're able to target that and you really bring those kids through. Now, um, in terms of the squad here, uh, as opposed to those, those, those games that are played for, for Leinster during Autumn Internationals and Six Nations period, um, you know, the, the, a lot of those kids that come through the Leicester team are away with England of the 20s, for instance, during Six Nations period. So that depth of squad has to be a little bit more experienced, I would argue, compared to say Leinster or Munster. Uh, and that that has been a question. Has that been good enough? It's certainly one of the reasons why I, I suspect a number of the other players were, were let go in the course of the, uh, of, of the summer. And you mentioned Norweed. There's been a, you know about Yaka Tauter, of course, brought across from, uh, from Munster over the course of the summer. He's been eased in. Um, so what the question has always been what do Leicester do during those international periods when it used to be obviously that it was a period of, of strength I look back on a guy you might remember him uh, a prop uh, who was Kiwi ball but in the end ended up representing England briefly a guy called Perry Freshwater yeah. ended up in uh, Danny Perpignan you know, didn't he he was an archetype of why Leicester were a success maybe 10, 15 years ago because he was unlikely to play much international rugby but he was an international quality prop and he would be brought on essentially when Roundtree was uh, getting tired uh, and Hope Graham's doing very well by the way at Talman Park incidentally good to see him uh, uh, cracking on um, but you'd see fresh water come on after half an hour and he'd be available during the, the, uh, the Six Nations and the Autumn Internationals now do Leicester have the depth of squad that they did have a few years ago? That's a very open to question. Because you look at the the recent period, the last five, six years, they last won the Premiership title in 2013. In the last few years, they've not actually qualified for the knockout stages in the, in the Champions Cup. And of course, for the very first time this season, they're playing in the Challenge Cup. And that steady slip down the table has continued so that they... And it just avoided relegation last season. So there, you have to be looking at, of 
probably looking at the hiring of coaches because any sport, you look at a club that has got rid of their head coach or their manager on three occasions since I think January 2017 when they uh, sat Reggie that doesn't strike that it's a uh, it's a particularly stable club. But to put it in context, Leicester is still a traditional club that relies on the season ticket holder base largely and obviously the TV money to invest in the squad. It doesn't have a Sugar Daddy. It doesn't have a Nigel Ray or indeed a Johan Rupert or Saracens. It certainly doesn't have a Steve Lansdowne at Bristol. Look at the effect that's coming down in the West Country. Um, so it relies on its supporter base, even though it's still just about the biggest uh, supporter base in English rugby. Well, now Bristol are catching them up. Uh, other teams are, are closing the gap with the staging of these special games. So there is a challenge there, and I suspect that even though clearly mistakes have been made over the last five years, I think clearly it would be a stretch for Leicester to compete at the same level that they did 10, 15 years ago. That is ancient history, and even now competing with the likes of Saracens, uh, Bristol, Northampton is proving a challenge in its own right. And obviously, once you get a bit of taste uh, for success at these various clubs, then that obviously adds to their recruitment luster, doesn't it? You can't deny that one of the reasons that people would join Saracens would be that they win trophies. It isn't always about the money. It's easy to be cynical about these things. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But if you come through a system that you know produces international talent, you are much more likely to go to that particular club and obviously reap the benefits of playing for your country if you're uh, if you're ultimately successful in that club. Yeah, it's an interesting point actually. We had um, we had English journal, uh, rugby journalist Ali Stokes on the podcast last week, and he kind of elaborated on what he termed kind of the short term ism that he feels is a major downfall of a lot of English clubs. And I guess kind of what you mentioned about squad recruitment that kind of ties into to Leicester. Before you go, Chris, could we just ask you a small bit more about um, about Gordon Murphy? Like the, he's been pretty upfront in his interviews, as we've seen over here. Even the players have been quite upfront. You saw Ellis Genge kind of um, very outspoken in the, in the aftermath of the game at the week. How have they been received by, by fans in particular? I think Jordan Murphy certainly has plenty of cash still in the bank. Okay. I think there is an understanding that these are long-term issues that need to be addressed in terms of recruitment, getting two or three class acts into the uh, into the squad each season and then bringing through the, uh, the, the academy talent. I think that's going to take time. I think there were one or two concerns raised after after losing to Lens. After all, I mean, if, if Lenster or Munster got uh, shellacked by 25, 30 points by the other, then there'd be almost as many uh, questions raised even about uh, Leo Cullen or Johan Redgrad. So, look, he's under pressure a bit, as you might expect. I mean, I've known him for about 15 years. I've dealt with him as a journalist. I think he's a terrific guy. I think he does have plenty to offer the coach. The coach, I think also what I think he would benefit from, and I believe he's working towards that, is a director of rugby role that would benefit him, whether that's him or whether that's Steve Borthwick, that who's been strongly linked with coming to Leicester. It, it almost in a way doesn't matter because if you look at the other 11 premiership clubs, none of them 
try to operate without that sort of powerful director of rugby that oversees everything and backs up the head coach if indeed that DOR isn't the main man. Look at, look at the successful clubs at the moment. Northampton, Chris Boyd, very much the, the master of all he surveys, gets backed up uh, by an operations uh, manager by the name of Paul Shields, who's his head of recruitment. Go the other way, Johan Ackerman at Gloucester, he's the head coach, but he's backed up by a man you'll know well, David Humphreys, who's the director of rugby. So I do think that's something listeners need to look at. But of course, the one thing we haven't mentioned is the club is up for sale. And the takeover almost certainly needs to happen quickly if Leicester are going to get anywhere near to the levels that they used to achieve a decade ago. So hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be chatting to you this time next year about their return to form and premiership, oncoming Premiership Challenge at the time. In the meantime, Chris... <laughs> th- <laughs> we'll do what we can, shall we, Morris? We'll put it in the diary now, shall we? <laughs> Thanks a million for talking to us today, Chris. No problem at all. No problem at all. Thanks a lot. So we talked last year... Jordan Murphy looked like he was taking over a, a you know a no win situation. You're saying like there is something kind of sad about when a club legend and someone that's loved is sort of like you know In we're seeing it with Ali Gunnar Solskjaer at the moment. You know what I mean? Like there is there is that it is a tough tough job to go in and be the man in charge when things aren't going well. If you have the love of the fans, it doesn't last forever. But it is interesting to see that that Jordan is sort of like. People do understand the situation he's in. It's not necessary. He's not come in and made a complete balls of things. Like yeah, ex- exactly. And I, I think that's why, you know, when you look at things in really binary terms, it can be kind of damaging. Like, there's obviously more, as Chris outlined there, there's more to it than just what a head coach is doing. Like, you do need to peel back a layer and understand, like, well, how does a squad get to this situation? Like, how, as an infrastructure, how does it affect the coach when you've got a team that's for sale, like, literally for sale, that's hanging over it? And how will that affect him in the future as well? Like, it's not, it's a really, really difficult position. And then I actually think... This, part of this is kind of people you know who find this stuff patronising or it's media praising media but I do find it great when you get a coach who's just upfront and honest and I think fans do appreciate it like I, I just, I'm not just saying this because it's in our interest I think it's in fans interest where uh, a coach kind of is t- upfront about the situation and if they were appalling admits that they were appalling and similarly with players now at the same time there's only so far that that stick will get you that you do need to show signs that will as much as fans like to see that, they would much rather see success. But for for the time being, yeah, I do think that that's kind of encouraging given uh, the situation where we find himself in. Another guy with a few Irish connections and and another uh, historically uh, good rugby city in England who are enjoying a little bit more success. They're normally on the other side. They're normally the team that... I'm pretty sure actually Bristol are the other team with Leicester who used to wear letters on their jersey instead of numbers. Jeez, that's so a, that's a connection between the two of them. There's harlequins are in my head as well. People are going to know this better than I do. I'll check it on the internet later, so you don't need to let us know. I will check this, but I'm pretty sure, I think it was Bristol and Leicester wore letters. Um, now, I don't know what the letters meant, but uh, <laughs> that's up until, like, in my memory, like, up until maybe the mid-90s. They didn't wear numbers that's, in New Jersey. If ever there was a, a fact that only Mick would know... <laughs> <laughs> That is it. <laughs> well, it's a fact I have now. <laughs> I, I'm a little, Would be aware of. I've yeah. got a little bit of arseways. But anyway, look, uh, Pat Lamb left Connacht. We were all kind of devastated to see him go. But like he has taken on this Bristol job Project, yeah. in the same way he did with Connacht. And has kind of revamped them, revitalized them, reinvented them almost. 
and the job he's doing has been fantastic and they're getting all the plaudits now they're every time we're talking about the the mess that is Leicester or you know last week when we were talking about all you know with with Ali about all the the clubs who weren't doing the job <laughs> in, Lamb, in, yeah. uh, in Europe it was always like you look at Pat Lamb and Bristol you look <laughs> at Pat Lamb and Bristol you look at Pat Lamb and Bristol it is sort of the narrative of the season so far yeah absolutely it's like it's it's kind of interesting because um for I'm sure every man and his dog already knows this, but last week Bristol announced that they'd signed Semi Dreira uh, from Fiji, the, the World Cup star that we all saw. And the immediate question, and I guess this is just the consequence of the Saracen situation, is how was that in the salary cap when you've got a guy like Charles Pietau already there? And then you see, I was half expecting like a Marcelo Biasa conference when I read, I saw this tweet at the weekend from John Everty, and he said... It was a highly impressive performance from Pat Lamb at today's press conference. The Bristol Bears director of rugby didn't duck any questions and actually turned up for questions with notes, facts, and a message which would delight the fan base. So basically, Pat Lamb kind of had the whole thing spelled out uh, about the situation that they find themselves in. So they've actually, since he gave this press conference, they've already announced that uh, Pietau is going to stay. So he's signed a new contract. But he went through it and he looked at it and he said, you know, Max, uh, look at our squad and look how we sign players. Max Laleff was let go by Bath, he had no club. Jan Thomas was let go by Gloucester, was playing Pro D2 in France. Uh, Jake Woolmore was let go by Exeter, was playing in the Championship. Jake Armstrong was playing in the Championship. Harry Tacker was going nowhere at Leicester. Sean Manton was not even going to show at Exeter. They gave them, all of those players, an opportunity. Joe Batley was getting no games. Joe Joyce was in the Bristol Academy. Uh, Dan Thomas was playing with Gloucester. Basically, he spelled out that how he not only... Is it clearly obvious that how he built his squad? That he did build a squad. He is actually telling people how he built his squad, and that is exactly the kind of long-term planning that we are crying out for. Not just in in English rugby, in rugby period, like that. If you could see, that's the model that provinces are trying to follow here as well in terms of long-term planning and stuff like that. And like, I do think that it kind of does spell out the idea that Pat Lamb would be tailor-made to oversee like. This Conor O'Shea has just taken a new role as director yeah. in England. I think a role like that for Pat Lamb, he would be perfect for that. Now, supposedly he has reportedly rejected a report approaches from New Zealand to be involved in some capacity in a, in a coaching ticket. But I, I don't think that's too far away when you see the kind of work he's doing in Bristol right now. Yeah. One person that isn't necessarily involved and people will be interested to know in all of this is Ian Madigan, yeah, who's is, been sort of frozen out over there. It's Well, it's just bizarre. Like, not bizarre, that's the wrong word, but just the career trajectory for a guy who... We mentioned that uh, at the very start we talked about the Leicester... Yeah, sorry, Leicester-Bristol game this time last year in December. I remember he was peerless in that game. Like, he his place-kicking was flawless. He was playing really well. And now he's... No, he's not even in matchday squads. He's not going to look in. You see suggestions that he could return to Ireland. I don't see where the space for an out half of his age right now. You know, the Ulster last year maybe, but now they've got two Irish qualifiers uh, in Johnson and Burns, and already there, already with a better age profile. Does he go to Connets where you've already got Jack Harty and? Everybody's talking about Fitzgerald and his development. I don't see that happening. Uh, Munster are incredibly well stocked. Going back to Leinster now, it seems. Like between you've got the two Burns, Sexton and Frawley, all there already. You're so potentially you're looking at there's probably a lucrative opportunities in Japan or um, you know uh, those kind of markets. But I I don't really see if he is you know maybe he can force his way back in for Bristol. But given their form, it doesn't look that likely. But I, it's hard to see, like it's just a weird not sad is the wrong word, but it's just a weird career trajectory for a guy who 
well, you know, there's the guys like Zebo and Ryan who go abroad and it clicks for them and they seize their opportunity. And for a while, it looked like Madigan was going to be similar to that. And now you're kind of looking at it and you're like, where is, you know, where to next, basically? Yeah. I think we're done. I hope that Ian Madigan does find somewhere to go next. But uh, before we go, uh, just looking here at numbering in rugby union. Uh, traditionally some clubs notably Leicester Tigers and Bristol have used alternative schemes consisting of letters uh, <laughs> so I did call it right I don't know where I had that in the arse of my uh, brain but uh, I dug it out and I found the link between these two clubs that goes beyond them being traditionally uh, big rugby powerhouse yeah. yeah so there we go um, anyway hope you enjoyed today's show there's a massive massive weekend rugby as I said we'll be, we'll be talking about it more on the build up um, later tonight uh, we'll be getting some kind of tips um, from Morris on that I think you probably have an idea where he's heading with the Irish teams there are other matches as well though, and we'll be looking at that but do enjoy all the games this week we'll be back with you next Tuesday um, to talk a little bit more about that and whatever else is going on in the world of rugby there could be another postgate by then we don't even know this because <laughs> that, that, your man could have started a trend yeah, yeah. there could be lifting up posts all over there might even be no padding on the post by the next time we talk to you good luck <laughs>